Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Clive Anderson. Welcome to My Seven Wonders. In ancient times, the greatest monumental works of mankind, such as the Great Pyramid of Giza or the tremendous Hanging Gardens of Babylon, were listed and celebrated as wonders of the world. And like Days of the Week and Deadly Sins, there were always seven of them. More recently, the Great Wall of China, the Taj Mahal, even the London sewage system have all appeared on lists of modern or technological wonders. Other magnificent sevens celebrate features of the natural world, such as the Grand Canyon or the Great Barrier Reef. But what are the seven wonders you would put on your personal list? Well, that's the question I ask my guests in this podcast. And the guest I'm asking today is the great TV mogul Michael Grade, these days more properly addressed as Baron Grade of Yarmouth. In a high-flying career, Lord Grade has held an impressive number of top jobs in broadcasting, having been at various times controller of BBC One, chief executive of Channel 4, chairman of the BBC and executive chairman of ITV. Michael, you somehow missed out on the shopping channel and men and motors, but I was half expecting your list to be dominated by TV shows you've uh, commissioned. Um, do, do you look back on all of the shows that you've been in, involved with happily. Your, your autobiography was called uh, It Seemed Like a Good Idea at the Time, so perhaps not all of them. I thought it'd be a bit self-serving. Uh, yeah. there, there are a lot of shows of which I'm inordinately proud uh, yeah. and some I'd prefer to forget, uh, but I thought, I, I thought for this purpose, I thought it'd be very self-serving. Sure. Now, I, I've mentioned all these broadcasting heights, but you've been involved in show business more generally for even longer than that. Uh, you 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 come from a family which, if you go back a couple of generation, generations, was an immigrant family and then quite poor, but wrote, went from rags to riches. Seems an odd, maybe a strange question to start with. Do you kind of regret that you didn't go through that procedure of of being uh, very poor and then becoming very rich? You 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 started fairly comfortably. I started very comfortably. I was born in 1943, uh, and by the time I was aware. The family, whilst not wealthy, was was on the way. I had a father and two uncles uh, who uh, none of them went to university. Uh, they all came through the war uh, and they started to build a business in the 50s uh, in the variety world, yeah. booking acts and so on. And very quickly, uh, they saw the opportunity in commercial television and they were amongst the founders of ITV. And so I, I, I don't remember being poor. Do I regret not being poor? Not for a moment. I, I'm so proud of the family name that, yes. uh, that uh, uh, perhaps, perhaps it would have done me a bit, bit of good to have uh, to struggled a bit, but uh, you don't really see it that way from your, no. your own point of view. So you're talking about your father, Leslie Grade, who represented a lot of big stars, your uncle, uh, Lou Grade, he also became Lord Grade, uh, like you, 
I mean, a very dominant figure in, in um, film and television. Bernard Delfont equally, uh, although that was his, he took a different name for performing purposes at one point. Uh, all very important uh, people. Did you ever also, another question, do you ever really want to be a performer yourself? No, never. Uh, I, I think I could have been a director, comedy director. Mm. Uh, I'm obsessed with comedy going back to the music halls in the 50s yes. and 60s. And I love comedy. And having worked with some of the greatest comedians this country's ever seen, I think I know how comedy should work and what it – we all know what is – what was funny yeah. or what wasn't funny. But the, 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 the trick is to know what's going to be funny. Yes. Uh, and uh, I, I really love working with comedians or sketches or situation comedies and putting a scene, walking in late and seeing a scene not working and, and putting my finger on, on what they need to fix. Well, I, I ask that question for, for personal reasons, and I've seen you in action uh, making speeches. In fact, I've been a victim of you twice. <laughs> <laughs> Once I was speaking at some event and you introduced me, and I was supposed to be the funny one, but you made a very funny speech, including going through all the jokes I'd ever made on television. So I was upstaged uh, by my own jokes. So the next time you asked me to do uh, a charity event, you promised not to do that. And then you introduced me by telling an old shaggy dog joke. But the, the trick of the thing, I hope not giving away one of your regular things, you interrupted your own joke with something. And the something you chose to interrupt it was with the Dagenham girl Pipers who came into the room, walked around playing a tune and walked away again. Here's Clive Addison. And I had to follow that. So you, in both cases, you were a perfectly good stand-up comedian. Well, uh, if you're going to stand up, I, it's it's a wonderful... Uh, my management style uh, over all the years has always been with humour to, to break the ice, to break the tension, break the conflict. <laughs> if you can make people laugh, the meeting relaxes, you know. Yes. doesn't mean you're not serious and you're yeah. not getting the point across. Uh, and it's, it's a, it's a, I understand how comedians get hooked on audiences. I mean, Ken Dodd, yeah. God rest his soul, one of my great favourite comedians of all time, he would never come off the stage. I no. mean, he, he was utterly, utterly addicted to audience laughter, and all comedians are. And I've had a taste of it. I know I'm not good enough to do it professionally, believe me. That's, <laughs> that's, that's the important bit. Well, Ken, I, Ken Dodd used to say to his audience after he'd been on for about three hours, he said, uh, you know, he said, it's very safe coming to see me. He says, you'll be going home in the daylight. <laughs> <laughs> Well, as you mentioned, or you alluded to, he's no longer with us, which I think is the only way of getting him to stop oh, uh, performing. Um, but anyway, let's let's start with your first uh, wonder then. And uh, what is that? My first wonder is the great operatic composer Giacomo Puccini, uh, who yeah. wrote Madame Butterfly, La Boheme, uh, etc. Yes. Uh, I, I love music. I'm not musical particularly, but I, I cannot live without music. And I spent the first six months of lockdown uh, reading two uh, biographies of Puccini, but also uh, reading two musicologists' dissection of his works. And as I finished each chapter, there was like a chapter on La Rondine or whatever, I would then spend the next few days listening to the music and you realize after a while that, that, that Puccini was a, a total and utter genius of melody uh, mm. and form. 
and his music touches me in a way that many composers do, but but nobody. Uh, I, I I I just stand back in awe at what he does with his melodic lines and his orchestrations and so on. Uh, absolutely, the music just poured out of it. So is this something you've always loved? So somebody you've always loved, or the opera you've always loved? Because uh, I mean, your early days of representing people i don't know who you would have been representing people like i don't know gracie fields or george formby or... well not quite I'm no not no quite i don't old. know i'm going back too far uh, i don't know which which era did you because you took over your father's business uh in the sense because he could because he was he because he wasn't well and, and... no I, I came in the era of uh, uh full-time working in the era of uh, morcom and wise and frankie howard and Bruce right. Forsyth and Tony yeah. Hancock and people. So um, not many, not many opera opera singers and uh, no, you went to the Royal Opera or the Palladium or the, 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 first or the musical. Opera, the first opera singer I met uh, was through my uncle Bernie, who had done a deal w- with an impoverished operatic star, huge star of the day, Richard Tauber. Oh yes, who was the great Mozartian tenor of his day. And he came to tea one day. I was about four or five, I, and I yeah. met the great Richard Tauber. Um, but uh, opera didn't come to me till very late. Uh, yeah. I, I always loved classical orchestral music, uh, but then I started going to the opera. As part of my job, really, we were televising Glyndebourne and doing various things. Yeah. And I suddenly realised what I was missing, and and I, I fell in. I love the musical theatre as yes. much as I love the opera. Yeah. So, but Puccini's. It's his music in particular, because because some operatic stories, the plot, uh, which he probably wasn't responsible for, in except well, for reflecting, they're a bit odd. Some of these stories, aren't they? All uh, opera stories yeah. are balmy, but they are at their heart. They 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 offer the uh, the composer the chance to uh, express conflict, emotion. Tragedy, etc., etc., etc. And Puccini was very particular. He, he found it very hard to find uh, plots, uh, and when he did, he 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 grabbed it. But you know, if you listen to Tosca, uh, the music—it doesn't matter about the plot. You know, who cares? You know, uh, the music is so moving. Yeah, well, Turandot—I suppose Nessun Dorma is uh, is is now entered the soul of the the nation on its own. But it's a uh, it's a along Turandot. with along with it's it's coming home. <laughs> yeah, yes, but but Turandot is Rumpelstiltskin, directed by Sam Peckinpah. It's it's a it's a and Nessun Dorma everyone's going to be murdered in the place. He it's, never finished it. He never yeah. finished it. All right, and, and Madame Butterfly—it's a it's a racist American bigamist uh, causing his, um, a plot spoiler, causing his Japanese wife's uh, suicide. So it's a, these are, uh, these it's are. Quite a, it's quite an anti-imperialist piece. Yeah. It's quite a strong, it, I think it's the strongest of his plots. It has a real political thing. He wasn't, Verdi was very interested in, in Italian politics. Yeah. Uh, but Puccini had no interest in politics at all. Yeah. Uh, but the kind of imperialist colonialist, uh, American politics uh, of we know best and we you know we can we, we can exploit the world rather offended him and he turned it into this just amazing amazing if you see a great production of Madame Butterfly give yourself two hours to recover. <laughs> <laughs>
Yes. Well, I, I mean, I'm a, a, an occasional visitor to the Opera House, and I always come away thinking, no, I should go. I should listen to this more. I should go more often. The, as you say, it's an it's an emotion being expressed in music, and even the tritest of plots will eventually get to a point when there's all all theatre. If if you're if you're not touched emotionally, the, the piece has yeah. failed. Whether it's straight theatre or musical theatre or opera, whatever it yeah. is, the whole point of going to the theatre is to laugh, to feel, to cry to go through the whole gamut of human emotions and share it, you know, with a, 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 a thousand people in, in the auditorium. And that's what you go to, that's what you go to performance for. I directed Swar Angelica in Los Angeles and the entire audience was in tears and men in evening dress and tuxedos and women in beautiful evening clothes were all with makeup that was running and they were all in tears. And at the end of the evening, Placido Domingo said to me, tonight you have made all of Los Angeles Catholica. So uh, emotion in the theatre, the musical theatre, the opera. Uh, let's go on to your next uh, wonder, which is uh, we can have emotion in the sporting field, perhaps at the hands of this particular wonder. Well, I I'm a sports fanatic. I started my career as a sports writer at 17 at the Daily Mirror uh, in 1960. Yes, uh, you, that... you, you were Mike Grade, the... Uh... The cub reporter and and, and then a full blown reporter. I was. I had my own column every day. Yes. Um, and I've seen. I've been privileged to see. I get very moved by uh, artists of sport. You know, whether they're tennis players, footballers, Pele, mm. uh, boxers, Muhammad Ali, etc. And I've seen them all live. You know, and uh, to me. Roger Federer is the embodiment of everything that's best and exciting and beautiful about great artists in their chosen sport. And I go back, I saw Ken Rosewell, I saw uh, Lou Hode, I saw all the greats of the 50s and 60s. Uh, Federer is, and Rod, Rod Laver, who up until Federer was my number one, Yes. But Federer's got it all. I mean, he is an artist with the racket. He also behaves immaculately on court mm. after a tricky start as a young man yes. throwing rackets and swearing. Yeah. But he's an immaculate ambassador for the sport and has been all the way through. But what an artist. What he mm. can do with a tennis ball. I, I, and he's an entertainer. Yes, I wouldn't call myself a, a particular expert on uh, tennis, but when you look at Roger Federer, he doesn't look as though he really hits the ball. He just sort of uses his racket to tell the ball, go over there, just indicates where to go. And, uh... he, he sees angles that nobody can see, and he's got the, the, the deafness in the wrist, the spin, but he can see the angle. He moves immaculately. He's never out of position on a shot. Uh, he's got it all. Serve, second serve, back of the court, at the net, volley, you name it, he can yeah. do it. But he does it with artistry. He's an artist. You know? <laughs> so, he's a ballet dancer. Yeah. Uh, now, would you would you rate him as, you know, people have these debates about all sorts of sports. Is he a, a, the GOAT, the greatest of all time? Because he's playing in an era where there are sort of at least two candidates. There always are. Accolade. Yeah. There always are in any era. Mm. Uh, to, 
the three greatest were probably Lou Hode, um, Pete Sampras, who was the yes. most boring tennis player you've ever seen. He was a machine. He was yeah. like a ball machine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, he, but he was completely devoid of any personality and any warmth. Yes. Uh, and and now we have uh, Roger Federer, and I think yeah. and well, Rod, Le- Rod Laver, who was a lefty, but he was he was an yeah. artist. But I mean, Djokovic is obviously a very, very good player as well. Um, he, he's brilliant, but he hasn't got the star quality and the magic. You know? No, well, even Rafael Nadal, who's got the star quality and and plenty of, you know, very firm skills, but much, you know, more he, brutal player. Yes, obviously a, a big star, but he's not the all-time great. He's not as good on grass. He, he's great on clay, but not yeah. as good on grass. Federer can play on any surface. You know? Yes. So if you'd stayed as uh, the reporter, the, the sports reporter at the Daily Mirror and your, let's say your father had carried on and, and, and survived and to, to, to run the company, what might you be now? Might you be the editor of the Daily Mirror or some other paper or more involved in sports administration? Yeah. I mean, what, what, where do you think your life, you know, the sliding doors kind of moment? Or were you always going to be drawn back to the family business Show business. Well, I never wanted to go in the family. When my dad was taken very ill, that, that I was told I had to get serious. Yes. Um, but years later, I got to know Hugh Cudlip, who was God at the Daily Mirror. He ran the Daily Mirror. And yeah. He was a genius at Fleet Street. And I got to know Hugh quite well. And he put his arm around me one day and he said to me, Michael, he said, if you'd stayed at the Mirror, he said, you would have been sports editor. I said, now you told me. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I, I, I suspect there's no regrets given the way your career has progressed. No, uh, no, I, I never look back, Clive. There's no good looking back. You, yes. you have to look forward. I did what I had to do, uh, and I've enjoyed a, you know, a really varied and exciting career doing things I never dreamed I was capable of. And when you, uh, <laughs> I don't think there are a lot of people who agree with that. <laughs> well, I'm just, just to think about your time as an agent representing people. Though, in my experience, there are kind of two types of agent. It's easy to divide. There's either ones who are going to threaten to throw you out the building or demand a million pounds, or you get shot. And the others who are, uh, you know, more ingratiating, if you like, We're friendlier. Um, everybody's friend. Um, I think I know the answer to this, but which one, which category would you put yourself oh, in? De- definitely the um, make things happen. Try and find a way to make the deal work, you know. Yeah. Uh, that was the best. Sharon Osborne, uh, yeah. her father, Don Arden, yes. was a, a pop agent. And I would never go to his office. I would only ever speak to him on the phone. Right? He had yeah. a gun in his drawer. <laughs> and if you didn't agree with what he wanted, he'd get the gun out and point it at you. Yes. Many people, many people experience. And one guy, he did dangle out the window by his ankles. Yes, that's, that's what I, you call a name. That's who you want on your side. I, I, yeah, he'd be my agent. That'd <laughs> yeah. be fine. Yeah. yeah, but you don't want to be in the contract negotiations with him. Not on the wrong side of him. No. Yeah, but that's when show business was show business. And, yes, and, and, and guns rock, were guns. Rock and rock and roll. Was who his. needs a pen when you've got a gun? You know, or a lawyer. Today it's all lawyers. Yeah, <laughs> but then of course when you were these various top jobs at the BBC, Channel 4 and everywhere else, you you were on the other side of the negotiation. Uh, perhaps the thing you have to do in those, let's say, controller of BBC One, you've got to turn down nine propositions and, and select one. I didn't, Maybe the figures are even worse than that. So uh, you, you seem to remain on good terms with a lot of people. Uh, were you good at turning people down in a friendly way? 
oh yes, there's no point in being no point in being horrible. Uh, and you know, you just hope that you get more choices right than wrong. You can't get them all right. Yes. Uh, but but if your if your batting average is fifty one, you, you can survive in 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 the job. You know. Uh, but I'm a, I'm I'm an encourager. You know. I'm, yeah. I, I I like to encourage artists and help them when they're down and yeah. talk to them and tell them gently where where perhaps they might be going wrong and so on. Yeah. But I suppose your most famous turning down or rather switching off was that you got rid of Doctor Who. Uh, not that it lasted uh, very long, but you, you did. I mean, I'm, I'm people who have been in Doctor Who can travel the world to the Doctor Who conventions. I suppose you could turn up <laughs> as a hate figure. Uh, did, I, did you have to steal yourself to do that? Not at all. It was one of the easiest decisions I ever made. The show was absolute rubbish at the time. It was still being done. I said to the producer, I remember the meeting in the studio, in the, my office with the producer, with Doctor Who, he said, how many do you want next year? I said, none. And the blood drained from his face. And he said, why? I said, have you been to the cinema lately? He said, what do you mean? I said, have you seen Star Wars? I said, have you seen Close Encounters? Have you seen E.T.? Have you seen any of these amazing movies? He said, yes. I said, I've got news for you. So is the Doctor Who audience. I said, and what you're delivering at the moment is so far behind, mm. it's just not worth doing. So forget it. And I yeah. cancelled it. I then I, I then received hate mail from America. I got a horse's ass award. Mm. Uh, I, I got uh, – there was – handkerchief circulating with my picture on saying blow your nose on this guy <laughs> it was just insane yeah but it came back with thanks to uh russell t davis reinventing it and digital effects and so on yeah. uh, it came back stronger than ever i mean uh it's not my cup of tea and never will be but i admire what they did with it to re regenerate yeah. it but it's a lot of tosh really <laughs> I suppose they could have uh, they could have said in that meeting, well, don't cancel us, just double our budget or budget times ten because that's where we're going wrong. Yes, that's a fair point. But of course, we didn't have the digital effects in those days. You know, we'd have had to put it on film. The costs would have been ludicrous. You know. Yeah, and you did the opposite thing uh, in in effect with Blackadder, which is now many people's almost favourite uh, sitcom of all time. The first series of that did have a bit of money spent on it and unluckily had to be filmed almost totally outdoor shots in snow because of the week they must have had for filming. <laughs> and it didn't work. It didn't work. And you could have cancelled that, but you just sort of, I think you agreed with the producers you'd halve their budget and make it an ordinary sitcom. It was nothing, so, to, do, it was nothing to do with the budget. The, the, no. the head of comedy, Gareth Gwendolyn, came to see me and we were going through what he was going to do next year, 10 of this, 11 of that. He said, now about Blackadder, I said, stop right there. I said, I'm not doing any more. He said, what do you mean? I said, I'm not doing any more. He said, why not? I said, you don't know if the show's funny or not. I said, you're up on a bloody Welsh hillside, single camera on a BBC budget. I said, nobody knows if the show's funny or not. I said, you get it into a studio with an audience yeah. and do it, you can, have, you can do as many as you want with that talent and, and the promise of the show. Yes. So there was a lot of gnashing of teeth, and he went back. Uh, ben Elton always says that I cancelled the show. I didn't cancel it. I made them come back into the studio, and the rest is history. I mean, they yes. delivered brilliantly. But well, it's, 
they turned to... into a brilliant show by that decision of not filming it all outdoors and in front of a studio audience. And you shoot it out of order. You've got no audience. Nobody can time anything. You know, yeah. it's hard enough to do comedy single camera film in Hollywood, let, let alone on a BBC budget. I should declare an interest. Once it was in front of a studio audience, they needed a warm-up man, and I was that warm-up man. So I think you find it was probably that single factor no that made question. all the difference. No question. No <laughs> question. <laughs> Anyway, that's uh, well. That was your second. I don't know how we got from Roger Federer to Blackadder via Doctor Who, but uh, let's go on to your third wonder, if we may. My third wonder is an artist who defies analysis. He's very ordinary looking. He wears a wig, and even from a, a very young age. But you cannot take your eyes off him when he's on the screen, no matter who's on the screen with him, mm. and that's Fred Astaire. Yes. And uh, this is this is an artist of of the most consummate skill, artistry, and imagination that is, it's impossible to imagine. And he's so he, he can hardly sing. I mean he can carry a tune just mm. about. He hasn't got a great voice. Well, he's a great dancer. But those feet and the choreography, which is all his, he and when he's on the screen, I don't care whether he's with Ginger Rogers or with uh, uh, Rita Hayworth, whoever he's with, you're not looking at them. You're just watching. You cannot take your eyes off it. Yeah. It's dazzling, dazzling, dazzling. And I have I met him. Well, I didn't meet him. I was in working in Los Angeles, and I went to the Bel Air Country Club to play golf. Mm. And they take your car, you know, they do valet parking. You, yeah. know, you know all about that, right? I know about it. I haven't lived it, but you you did for a while, didn't you? Yeah. As a and top I, I, American I pulled, executive. I pulled up and the valet parker took the car, took the car keys, and I'm just going in the revolving door of the Bel Air country, and out comes Fred Astaire, probably aged about 75 then. Yeah. And I just, I just sort of dribbled. You know? <laughs> I, I've met them all. I've met Elvis Presley. I've met, met yeah. them all. Uh, but he, he is just such an unlikely star, yeah. most unlikely. So you wouldn't a... call him sexy, would you? you wouldn't, no, I mean, he's like... not very, wasn't very big. Uh, no, uh, very but slight. Then, but Hollywood stars are often small for some reason. I don't know, there must be some... Well, they used to, some... when Alan Ladd was a big star in Hollywood, they used to have dig trenches for his leading lady. <laughs> So that when they're walking along in a two-shot having a conversation, he's taller than she is. He was tiny. But anyway, Fred Astaire hit, so he still exuded star quality uh, even when he's just hanging around a golf club. Absolutely. I was just completely, completely blown away. I I never never courage to speak. I I met them all. I'm just like, oh. But even today, you know, on a rainy weekend afternoon, you'll find a Fred Astaire film on television. So, prop, which one would you recommend? Uh, I mean, anyone, a top anyone, hat or, or anyone? Or shall anyone, we dance? Silk anyone, stockings? Yeah. Anyone. <laughs> Just watch him. You won't yeah. take your eyes off him. Thomas Winthrop. Yes, Mr. Curtis. 
Now, there's nothing I admire more than the spirit of independence, but sometimes it can be carried too far. For instance, our group is known for absolute precision. All the other girls are doing this dance one way, and you're doing it another. I'm sorry, but I don't know that part of the routine. Would you like to try it with me? I'd love to. Uh, Tommy, let's have the second 24 bars. Ready? One and two and... So we've touched on uh, your family background. Uh, so perhaps the, the fourth um, wonder of yours is, a, is an interesting uh, sort of contrast to that or side issue to that. It is. And it's, it's the most surprising thing to me is that I've developed over the years a ridiculous uh, uh, affinity with great buildings. I love great architecture. For me, the greatest building in the UK uh, is King's College Chapel at Cambridge, right? Which is it's so perfect the setting mm. uh, and the proportions of the building. You couldn't move one stone without destroying the whole thing. Yeah. And it's one is another one of those buildings, one of the few in the UK that you just stare at and stare at and stare at because it is it is perfection. It is yeah. absolute, and it's also. You wouldn't find that or anything like it anywhere in the world but England. You know, mm. you wouldn't find it in Scotland or in Ireland or, or in Wales. It's very English. You know, it's as English as Elgar or, or any. It's mm. so English, but it's so beautiful. Well, it's a be- as you say, it's a beautiful setting because it's got what the, what are they. It's called the Backs at Cambridge, the river drifting by, people punting on it, great green lawns, and then this fantastic building, which but is. But it's what, not uh, monumental. No. It's not monumental. It's it's perfectly proportioned for the space that it occupies, and it is it is a wonder. You know, I've been in great cathedrals and admire, but this some there's something English about this place. It's kind of understated, yet yet it's a jewel, an absolute jewel of a building. Yes, and of course within it, there's also uh, not an English painting, a Flemish painting, uh, Rubens' Adoration of the Magi, uh, which uh, they had to re restructure the building a bit to to accommodate, uh, which is an unusual uh, look to it, uh, the whole yes. thing. Yes, but, you know, accidents happen in, in big projects like that, and, and sometimes yeah. good comes out of it. You know. Well, buildings like that, chapels and cathedrals, even more, they, they get built over a long period of time and mm-hmm. styles change, but this is... Before health it? Goth- it's a Gothic uh, architecture, yeah. isn't it? Perpendicular it, Gothic. It's all done before health and safety, you see. That was the key. <laughs> You can't have selected this in order to to rail against health and safety. <laughs> Don't get me going. Yeah, yeah. Don't get me going. But but having selected a, a what is a religious building, are you are you affected by it spiritually in any way? It's just not, or do you do you relate to religious beliefs? Yeah, I I, I, I have a strong faith. Uh, I have no confidence whatsoever in in re- organised religion of any kind, which always feels to me like politics. Mm. Uh, it doesn't feel spiritual at all. It's um, just an adherence to your party, your your yes, sect. Yes, I'm a secular yeah. Jew, really. Yeah. I mean, I go to synagogue occasionally, uh, yeah. and I used to sing in the in the chapel uh, uh, at school and do all the things that the boys did in those days at private schools. Um, uh, well, most of the things. Uh, yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> don't have to admit them all. <laughs> And uh, so I understand faith and I respect people of faith. I have great respect for people of faith. Uh, But it's just organised religion, which I I think is all politics. 
Yes. You know, when the chief rabbi of Jonathan Sachs's was, refused to go to Rabbi Hugo Grint's funeral because he was a, a reform rabbi, he wasn't orthodox. Yes. That was the end for me. I, I can't go with this. This is just, you know, this is, this is not teaching humanity and tolerance and all the things that, all the things that are wonderful about spirit of religion, spirit of religion mm. and the teaching of religion are very rarely enacted by the organisations that run religions. Can, can I mention, I think you've been married three times and one of your weddings happened in a Christian church or a chapel. Uh, the, guard, the guards' chapel, yes. Yes. And was that controversial at the time for you no. or were you just happy to do that? No, it wasn't controversial at all. I respected uh, the family's faith and my wife's faith and nobody objected. My family didn't object. I, and if that's what my wife wanted and uh, they would accept me at the guards' chapel, it's good enough yes. for me. Right. Okay. So, um, so I was just interested to know what uh, you've selected, um, as it were, a, a religious building. But it's the architecture, the, the look of it. The um, uh, do you uh, you mentioned you you left school at seventeen and went straight to work. So you didn't go to university. When you go to somewhere like King's College Chapel or Cambridge generally or other university, but I'm sure you've spoken at lots of universities. Do you ever think, oh, I, I really could have enjoyed three years here before becoming Mike Grade of the Mirror. Had I understood what university meant and what my passion were, I the only thing I regret about my life is that I didn't go to university and study music, not to not to make a career of it, yes, but to to learn and and to have a much greater grasp uh, of music because uh, that's I can't live without me. I have to have music all day and all everywhere. Right. I have to have music. And I'm, I can recognize most composers. My son, who's a brilliant musician, is at the Royal College of Music, Samuel. You know, we played a game since he could sit in the front of the car, you know. And I'd, I'd bang on uh, Radio 3 or Classic FM, and we'd have to guess the composer because we didn't hear the announcement, you know. And you didn't get the digital readout. Yeah, I was going to say, say, he's probably worked out quicker than you did. It was, it was being written up. Uh, and... I, um, music is so important to me, so important. But I wish I was a company. I would have, if, if I'd wanted another career, I would have wanted to be a, a conductor, classical conductor. That that would have suited me down to the ground. Oh right, yeah, yeah. that well, would be that, that would be my dream. If I yeah. if I won the lottery, uh, I would hire uh, the Albert Hall and and get all the kids in from the Royal College of Music and do a conductor concert. Yes. Uh, and see who wins. <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe not such a good. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I'm only guessing, and I'm not prying. But I think you could, you could put the money together to hire the, the Albert Hall anyway. Well, it's so, very kind of you to offer, Clive. <laughs> I'm sure we, we could crowdfund it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, we'd pay not to come. <laughs> this building is all about verticality, soaring upwards. For hundreds of years, it was one of the tallest buildings in this city, lording it over the flat fenlands around. Get close, and it's almost physically impossible not to look up, aptly enough, since it was built as a house of God. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. All right, so we're going to go back to comedy, though, with your fifth wonder. For me, the greatest American comedian of all time, and I've seen most of them, from Bob Hope to uh, George Burns, was Jack Benny. Right. And he was an unusual. He was very smart, very, very, very meticulously dressed. Yes. Had a very slow, deliberate delivery. Mm. And when you look back at his material... He didn't tell jokes. He sort of wove stuff. Yeah. Uh, And his timing and his looks and his persona were just perfection, just perfection. And I I go back to YouTube very often when I'm, you know, got nothing to do for 10 minutes. Yeah. Have have a quick look at Jack Benny. Uh, He was predicated, his character was predicated on being mean. Which of yes. course he, he wasn't, but he was the meanest man in show business. Was kind of the way yeah. he presented himself. And he did a he did a line at the Palladium. <laughs> he used to play the violin at the end. Yeah, and he said, "Ladies and gentlemen," he said, "You've been very good." He said, "I'd like to play the violin for you." I usually finish with a little tune on the violin. And he gets the violin out. And he's tuning it and he's chatting. Mm. And he said, "When I say violin," he said, "When I say this is a violin, it's not really a violin." He said, "I don't know if you." know about these things but this is a genuine Stradivarius mm. a few more notes he said well if it isn't I've blown 25 bucks <laughs> but he, he used to sit when yeah. he was when my dad booked him at the Palladium I'd go up to see my dad in the office and Jack Benny would be sitting in the armchair in my dad's office watching mm. my dad working and hustling yeah. you know he loved it <laughs> I thought he was a Genius, a total, and oh my god, he's so such an original. You know, Bob Hope was a, a wonderful personality, but he was a joke, a joke, joke, yeah. joke, 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 you know. Yeah. Uh, so Jack Benny was more like a sort of decades long running gag, and so he did radio programs which then went on to television, T- TV show. There's an opening of one of the TV shows where one of his half hour yeah. sitcoms, the Jack Benny show, and the show opens, and he's sitting on his sofa in the in his in his apartment. Reading the newspaper, very he had very not not effeminate but very meticulous movement with his yeah. hands and everything. And the newspaper was neat; he was neat. Right? And there's not a word said, and he's reading. Oh, that's interesting. Mm. Reading the paper. Suddenly, there's a knock knock at the front door. So he folds the newspaper up, walks to the front door, opens the front door, and a man says, "Mr. Jack Benny." 
ECBS. And the man says, I'm from the Inland Revenue Service, <laughs> at which point Benny just faints. It falls <laughs> flat on his back. It's just brilliant. Yeah. And, of course, he, he worked with his well, his wife for, for a while anyway. Yes. Uh, Mary Livingston. Was Mary Livingston, yes. Yeah. Yeah. But then she... She got was it stage fright or she didn't want to yeah, she didn't, didn't want to perform yeah. no 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 but he eventually he was great chums with George Burns Burns and Allen which was a, a husband and wife double act yeah and they all came up together in vaudeville and he and he and George Burns were, and when Gracie died it was very funny uh, Jack Benny they used to go for charity shows they did it at the Royal Variety performance one year Jack Benny came out as Gracie. And, and and George Burns would do the, the routine and the feed lines, and then yeah. Jack Jack Benny would do the, the Gracie lines. It was just genius. Yeah. So, is there something special about American comedians? Do you think that they that uh, seem you know more Amer- impressive for, you know, even when American, they come? American comedy in in my time. Once you get past Jimmy Durant, Schnozzle Durante, mm. and the who was amazing, um, the, the vaudeville era. Um, their comedy was much slicker. Yeah, you know, it was much more Bob Monkhouse than Ken Dodd, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, smart suits and observational. Shelley Berman, obs- you know, there's a woman yeah. hanging out of the building opposite. Uh, uh, um, uh, Tom Lehrer with the songs. Uh, Bob Newhart with the driving instructor and all that. Yeah. Very clever. You'd never see a British comedian doing that stuff. They do gags. Yeah. You know, it'd all be vaudeville yeah. and, and gags. So it was American comedy was much more sophisticated. Yes, well, because Bob Monkhouse was very slick, but very gag oriented. You never, you never really believed if he said his wife did something. There was never a real wife in the no, so As Frankie Howard, I would say the opposite end of the show. Certainly not slick, but you entered into his world. Yes, in absolutely. His, in his act, with or my, without jokes. My favourite Bob Monkhouse guy. He said, uh, "When I told my father I wanted to be a comedian, he laughed. Well, he's not laughing now. <laughs> now that that is a piece of." Bob Monkhouse wit and intelligence, and that's a yes. brilliantly constructed joke. Yes, <laughs> yeah, I want I want to die die like my father in his sleep, not <laughs> scream, not, not screaming like the passengers on his bus. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, yeah. great stuff. I think that I think he gets uh, associated with lots of jokes. Bob Monkhouse. Yeah. I don't know if they always were his originally, but he, he brought them to the public. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. Was, Alan Bennett and I had a conversation once about comedians, and he said name dropping. Yeah. Uh, um, and Alan said something very, very true about British comedians. He, he said, "I like Michael." He said, "I like my comedians to be daft." Yes. You know, Bob Monkhouse wasn't daft. Arthur Askey was daft. Yeah. Ken Dodd was daft. You know, and I, I, I'm totally in the uh, Alan Bennett uh, class. I love my comedians to be completely mad. You know, Peter Kay. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. Eddie Izzard. I mean, completely barking. You know. Yes, I think I think that's Bob Monk has always found he wasn't loved in the same way as no. the, 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 those other comedians. Huge um, talent, though. Huge yeah. talent. Uh, sort of computer, he, he, he could deliver a gag absolutely correctly, but in, uh, immaculate, immaculate. But you still laugh more at uh, 
Frankie Howard or Ken Dodd in a, a sort of different slightly yeah, different you, you, way. Yeah, Frankie Howard get a laugh with a mistake. You know, yes. his, his his problem was always remembering what the next line was. So he used to do oh well, well, misses <laughs> while he tried to remember what the next line was. Yes. Yeah, I I know. I I wrote for him for a while. I remember sitting in the back of the Royal Variety Show while he d- mucked up every joke. Everything, written for yeah, him. but he was still funnier still than if funnier. he'd got it. Than if he'd got it right. <laughs> my my outstanding memory of Frank, God rest him, yeah. uh, was opening night at the Palladium Pantomime. He's starring in Jack and the Beanstalk, and he's being sick in the basin in the other room as usual, <laughs> pre-show nerves. There's a knock at the door. He says, "Seal it is." So I go to the door. <laughs> And it's Vanessa Redgrave. Oh, I said. And he said, oh, hello, dear. He said, come in, come in. What can I do for you? She said, I've come to recruit you to the Workers' Revolutionary Party so we can overthrow. Oh, my God. He said, Overture and Beginners. And he said, get her out of here, Mark. Get her out. So I just shush Vanessa Redgrave. The idea of Frankie Howard leading a revolution to overthrow the establishment yeah. and capitalism and all the rest of it was just, I mean, how... A fellow thespian, he said, <laughs> on opening night. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to be that good, really. I... Thank you very, very much, ladies and gentlemen. I, um... My God, he looks so much younger on television, <laughs> I guessed it, didn't I, when I walked out? But I, um, I want to say that I'm really very, very happy to be here for the uh, Royal Variety Show, and I feel that this is a sort of a return engagement for me. You see, I was here for this same show, for the Royal Show in 1949, and I um, was such a big hit. <laughs> that they brought me right back again <laughs> 12 years later, you think? All right, look, uh, so we've covered uh, your, your working life quite a lot. Uh, the, the next wonder perhaps leads us to something you do when you're not working, when you've not exactly got your feet up, but you're not uh, striving in a business sense. So I, what's your sixth wonder? I've, um, my sixth wonder is a sailor, uh, not Sir Francis Drake, or Nelson, although they could easily... Nelson could certainly be a hero. Uh, yes. But it's actually Ben Ainsley, Sir Ben Ainsley. Right. Who I've got to know extremely well over the last few years and have been involved in uh, on a, at a board level with his America's Cup bid. Britain has never... It's the only major sporty trophy Britain's never won. I've got to know Ben extremely well. And he is... He's To me, he's a miracle. He's a kid who, when he was very young, did nothing but sailing. I mean, all he wanted to do was go out and fight the waves in a little dinghy and learn how to get the most speed out of it. I mean, com- what it takes to be a world-class athlete and win four gold medals in the Olympics, uh, he, he was so obsessed and so determined. Mm. But at the same time, he is the sweetest, shyest, gentlest man off the wall. On the water, he's... Yes, he's he's, he's Mister Hyde, you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, off the water, he's a sweet Doctor Jekyll, All uh, right. and 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 very skilled. And it's very interesting. My son is a good sailor, Samuel, who's a musician, 
And Ben came to lunch one day, and Samuel was taking his sailing very seriously. And I said the leading question to Ben in front of Samuel. I said, um, how important is nutrition, Ben? <laughs> and Ben said, very, very, looking at Samuel, he said, it's very, very important. He said, on the other hand, he said, eating more lettuce doesn't get you off the start line first. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But uh, we have very few giant, giant stars of their sport who will be legends whenever sport is talked about. And Ben is one of those. And he's also one of the nicest people. And uh, uh, I'm involved with the Royal Yacht Squadron in his, his next bid to win the Cup. So, so as an Olympian, he, he, as you mentioned, he's got gold medals at Sydney, Athens, Beijing and London Olympics. I think he competed in another one as well. You, you're calling him Ben Ainsley. That's how we know him. But in fact, he's now Sir Charles Benedict Ainsley, having been recognised in the honours system as well. And he's attempted to do this America's Cup thing. No, but you do sailing yourself. I do, yes. So, so are you a dinghy sailor or no, do you have a huge no, no. gin palace where you no, entertain no, your, your um, showbiz pals? What, no, what sort no, of sailing have, do you do? Uh, cruising and racing, I still race. Yeah. Uh, I have a partner, Mickey Sidorwin, and we, we're partners in a – we have a 50-foot sloop, yeah. which we race at Cow. We were second in our class the last time Cow's raced. Yes. Uh, and I helm – uh, most days, Mickey and I share the helm and what have you. Uh, we love racing. Yeah. Uh, I've done the Atlantic, served the Atlantic three times, right. which is amazing. I, yeah, deliberately first... or did you just get blown off course? <laughs> no, deliberately. The first time I went, I was so excited. And the last thing I had to do before I left for the Canary Islands to do the trip across, I was launching a Channel 4 program, something, probably something with you, Clyde. <laughs> And, and you wanted chin- to sail away after that. This, this chinless wonder came up to me. He said, hello. He said, I'm the half of a hyphen at something. Yeah. He said, I'm with the Times Diary. I said, very nice. What can I do for you? He said, oh, are you going away for Christmas? I said, yes, as a matter of fact, I said. I thought it was a good line for him. Yeah. I said, I'm, 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 going, I'm going to sail the Atlantic. Good grief, he said. Sail the Atlantic? I said, yes, scribbling away his note. Yeah. He said, how long does it take? I said, well, it depends on the wind. But about two weeks across, you know. Yeah. Oh, he said, must be very boring. I said, yes, it could be very boring, sir, but we're very lucky on my boat. I said, we've got cable television. <laughs> so he writes all this. He obviously went back to the office and yeah. filed it. Yeah. <laughs> Did he write it up? Did they write it up? It, it, it didn't get printed, no. I think, he had his, I, think, I think he had his ears boxed, I think, by the diary editor. <laughs> cable television yeah. going across the Atlantic. Well, so you're still doing what? Well, that sounds quite energetic. I, I, mean, I put this delicately, but uh, is it a it, sailing? Is it a young man's game, or can you still do it? Not the way you know, I forever? Sail. No. The thing I love about sailing is there's not a lot of walking involved. <laughs> if you I, my, I have some experience of being on other people's boats and, and things like a boom comes flying across the boat yeah, or, yeah. or you have to run to the other side or you're supposed to untie some rope, which isn't called a rope. It's always called something else. Uh, so it's there's, there's physical activity involved, isn't there? Uh, yes, but I'm a good delegator on the boat. Yeah. You know? I like so to you get... sit at the back saying, tie that sheet. No, or... I just, I, yeah, I just I keep an eye on everything and I drive the boat and... Uh decide when we tack and when we jive and when to put the spinnaker up and all that right. stuff. It's, it's the most magical, magical sport. Mm. And I'm, I never thought in my lifetime I would be involved uh, with my great hero, Ben. Yes. Uh, and uh, that is just, you know, 
takes your mind off everything. Crossing the finish line in ninth, one place ahead of his Danish adversary, Ainsley and the crowd knew he'd done enough to equal a quite staggering Olympic record of four consecutive gold medals. Christensen's brave challenge ended soon after, but he had to settle for silver behind an elated Ainsley, who claimed top spot on the podium courtesy of a better medal race finish after the two rivals had finished level on overall points. We've got to go on to another English institution for your final wonder. There are certain things that define a kind of English way of life and the English season. Um, you know, we have the monarchy, we have the BBC, we have the House of Lords. There are all kinds of things that define us. King's College Chapel is an essential piece of British culture and, uh, and the look of England. But the balmiest of them all, the most wonderful, is Glyndebourne Opera. Yes. Well, <laughs> you leave London at lunchtime in a dinner jacket. You get on a train to Lewis. You get in a taxi all doled up with your picnic basket. And it's peeing with rain. And you find a spot on the grass under a tree which is dripping. <laughs> and at about five o'clock, you go into the opera house and you see the most wonderful first half of Cosy Fantuti or something. And you come out. Then you get pissed uh, and you eat your soggy smoked salmon salad or whatever it is with a glass of the Pouligny Morichet. And then you all go back in and everybody's very comfortable and you watch the second act about yeah. a, an hour and 20 minutes later. And then you wander around the gardens with a glass of Pims about 11 o'clock and then you, all, then you all wander off home. It's completely, utterly barking, eccentric. But my God, it's part of England. It's part of the season. And it's the most idyllic experience you could imagine. Yes. So uh, so you're a regular there, I would imagine. Given I your... love to go. I can't yeah. go often enough, but uh, yeah. I absolutely love to go. We used to televise a lot of the operas from there at Channel yeah. 4 when I was running it. Uh, and I got to know everybody, George Christie and, and so on. Yeah. And then they built a new theatre and I got the contract for Channel 4 to transmit from from the uh, from the new theatre. It's a magical place. Can you imagine going to a bank? And I've got this idea. You know, I've got this field in in in, in East in Sussex. Yeah. Uh, up in a hill. I said, there's no, there's no no population around about. You, you know, a few sheep, and that's about it. Yes. And, and we're going to build an opera house, and people are going to come down on the train from London, eat and drink, and watch opera. You well, of course, it was set up by uh, not George Christie, but his father John Christie. Who, yes. and and I think uh, I know this from there's a there's a play about it was on uh, not long ago. Um, his idea, he's oh I know we'll put on the ring cycle, we'll do, and he had a, a, two or three people who are who are leaving Germany uh, for for good reason. They said, yeah, yeah, great idea. I'll be your conductor. I'll be your musical director. Yes, your wife can sing in some of the opera, but let's put on. Let's put on Verdi yeah. or Puccini. Let's have stuff. That, and he, oh no, I, I was hoping for something really serious. And he had to be persuaded that his idea was just slightly too mad. Yeah, and the, and that's yeah. why it took off. But, but mad is the word. It's a great word to use in connection with Glamour because the whole the whole concept is mad. Yeah, and like all great concepts that stand the test of time, it seemed mad at the time, but it 
it absolutely was. Uh, yeah. uh, somebody's dream. It's it, you know, it's Field of Dreams. It's 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 that movie Field of Dreams. Yeah. It's that dream. Some some mad Englishman has has a, or English woman has a has a dream and makes it happen. And hey, yeah. guess what, guys. It works. Yeah. It's and of course, mad. there are other places that do similar things now, so it has yeah. caught on. But uh, I'm not sure how how good it is for the musicians because uh, you you mentioned people are going to have a picnic, but in fact, there's a restaurant there as well, isn't there? And so there's a long there's a long interval between the first act, and I don't know what the musicians get to eat. Presumably, they get some smoked salmon sandwiches or something. Yeah. Uh, but there's a long evening for them to perform in. Uh, yes, in but it's, uh, instead of a, a, a twenty minute break. You know they've got, they get an hour and twenty minutes to really unwind and get gear up for the next big blow. Yeah. Uh, and, and, but the the quality I've never seen a bad production at Grand. Yeah, I've seen things I didn't particularly like, but uh, the quality is 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 just just yeah. brilliant. And, and so many great opera stars. If you look at their CV, you'll see that they played Zelina at. You know, right. at Glyndebourne in nineteen eighty-three, or everyone—they—they're great at picking talent that's on its way up. It's a great training ground. Some of the biggest operatic stars in the world. I, I've noticed, Michael, in the course, we're coming to the end of this conversation. But you've—I um, say, Michael, Lord Grade—we've uh, been—you've been. Um, frequently saying oh that's charming it's a very english thing this is the epitome of englishness uh, w- would you say that's something you concentrate on as opposed to britishness do, do you see the united kingdom separating as, as you know a lot of people want to do into its constituent parts or is there a, a british element that you would regret passing oh, I, I don't think there's any question there are huge cultural differences between the home nations mm. you know the, the northern irish culture is different from the scottish culture from the welsh culture you know, they, the Welsh have got uh, the Ice Deptford. Uh, you know, Edinburgh's got the tattoo and the Edinburgh Festival. You know, they, they, we've all got our own. But I'm English. I feel English, and uh, I, I, my, the way my mind works is kind of what, what is what is it? What is Englishness? And it's it's about things and institutions and the way yeah. we the way we do things. It's just different but the union there's no question we're stronger together i mean i can't imagine what what heartbreak would occur in scotland if they were to break away yeah. you know they wouldn't be able to borrow any money yeah uh, they'd have nothing behind their currency uh taxes would go i mean it's just awful so that's the that's the british connection what about the european connection because what with a family that's got links with whether it's Ukraine or or Russia and the, you know the other um, other aspects of a of a Jewish family, uh, do you feel uh, separate from Europe? And are you pleased that uh, Brexit has happened, or is that something you regret? I I was a big supporter of the common market and voted in favour whenever it was in seventy three or seventy five, yeah, seventy four, voted in favour. And I've, I've watched it and I've heard all the arguments. And when it came to the eventual decision, I did, I did agonize. I'm not a zealot about mm. pro or anti. Yeah. I, I'm just trying to look at it dispassionately. And almost to the last week, I was undecided which way to go. And in the end, I decided that the sovereignty argument was more important than, than the risk of short-term economic damage. Right. And I voted. I voted to leave. Because yeah. I don't believe it's I, I believe that the people who created the structure of Europe, 
for visionaries after the war. You know, we've had two world wars in Europe, mm. and uh, they were very mindful of the fact that Hitler had been elected. Mm. You know, he didn't seize power; he was yes. elected, yes. and they decided that the electorate couldn't be therefore couldn't be trusted, and mm. so therefore they set up the constitution in a way that they could bypass the electorate. And that's got worse and worse and worse. And you realise now, of course, Brussels is a dumping ground for the bureaucrats that are hopeless in their own country. The whole thing is a, is a shock. It's not irredeemable, yeah. but they, they, they seem unable to change. Uh, and I would, I would vote again if they reform, I'd vote for you. To go back in. Oh, yes. I see. But at the moment, you're happy with Boris Johnson as uh, Prime Minister, as a loyal Conservative, or would, do you see faults in him? All politicians, no politicians are perfect. Uh, I, I just look at the uh, majority in the House of Commons. <laughs> a very political, diplomatic answer, if I may say. No, he's a great vote winner. He's a fantastic vote winner. Yes. Um, the, the people. Can you imagine the the hard Labour seats in the North voting for for an old Etonian toff? Yeah. You know, all the abuse that the Labour front bench have hurled at Etonians, David Cameron and, and yeah. Boris and so on, from the front bench. It's not the way their voters think. No. They voted well, for him. I haven't got time now to go, but would you say he's the most trustworthy of uh, prime ministers that has uh, occupied number 10? I don't trust any politicians. Really. <laughs> They're like agents. Yeah. Look, so many different careers you should have gone into. You should have been a sports reporter, sports ah. editor. You should have been a sailor. You should have been a comedian. You clearly should have been a politician as well. Michael Grade, Lord Grade, thank you for sharing your seven wonders with me. Now, I have to choose the wonder of wonders from your list of seven, the one which struck me as particularly wonderful as you described it. And uh, I, you know, I wasn't really concentrating as you went through. They're all such intriguing uh, ones. I think the one that uh, possibly goes with you the best. I know you, Puccini and Gleinborn, but, but I, I think I will think of you as somebody who would have enjoyed Jack Benny. So I'm going to put Jack Benny as the, the wonder of wonders. No argument from me. Okay. Thank you very much, Michael Grade. Thank you, Clive. My Seven Wonders with Clive Anderson is a stack production in association with Alaska TV and powered by the Acast Creator Network. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.